Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to season three. On this week's episode, I'm talking to Bill Hall. We have a new paper out in the Lancet Oncology, and Bill Hall explains it to me. You won't want to miss this. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, vinayprasadmdmph. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom with Dr. Bill Hall. William Hall is associate professor at the Medical College of Wisconsin. He's a practicing radiation oncologist, and he's here to talk about a new paper that we worked on together, entitled Considering Benefit and Risk Before Routinely Recommending Space OAR, which appears now in The Lancet Oncology. Bill, it's a pleasure to have you here on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Space OAR. This is this is what caught your interest. Why don't you tell listeners a little bit what the hell is space OAR? Space OR. Sure. Sure. So space OAR is a device that is essentially a polyethylene glycol hydrogel. I see. And it's injected as a liquid and then it expands in the space that's between the prostate and the rectum. It essentially polymerizes after you inject it and it solidifies into a solid structure that's subsequently absorbed. And the goal is to try and separate the prostate from the rectum itself to reduce the dose of radiation going to the rectum. I see. So what you're saying is you take some go lightly, which is what this is, polyethylene glycol, but it's some poly- polymerase gel, and then you inject it. So you go into the rectum, and where you're normally doing like a transrectal prostate biopsy, you're, you're pulling the needle back a little bit, and you're injecting it so that it will firm up and keep the rectum, rectal tissue, away from the prostate. Is that accurate? It's not usually done transrectally. I, I believe it's, I don't do the procedure, but I, um, I believe that the typical recommendation is to do it transperineally. Oh, I see, transperineally, of course. Yeah. Rookie mistake. So similar to, to how a, a brachytherapy procedure would be done. I see. Uh, or a fiducial placement. So who does it? The urologist does it. Uh, it depends. Uh, you know, I think it, it depends on the institution. I think in some cases, radiation oncologists do this. Uh, in some cases, uh, it's done by urology. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I think it largely just depends on the workflow at the, at the particular institution. And you're saying that if you take this, this hydrogel spacer and you place it here, there's a theoretical reason you'll deliver less radiation to the rectum if you're going to deliver prostate radiation. It's a theoretical, a, a theoretical reason that since it's further away, it's going to get hit with less radiation. Fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little more than theoretical. It, it, had, it has been shown dosimetrically pretty conclusively that the doses of radiation going to the rectum are lower when, when patients undergo space OAR placement. I, that I don't think is at all questioned, particularly the high doses of radiation 
they the rectal wall does receive lower doses when when space oer is placed okay. so that's so in fact it it does lower the radiation to the rectum yes. but the question i guess the clinical question is of course are people better off by having it placed or not Correct. Correct. That's that's the big clinical question. And so you're saying that somebody did a 1,000 person randomized trial, space OAR or or no space OAR. Actually, it was a three arm study. The middle arm was a sham controlled space OAR where they just use saline, and they proved that patients have better quality of life if they get space OAR. No. So it was a it was a small study. It was yes, a it was not study. a study. It was a two, okay. Okay. It's not a thousand person randomized trial. I'm just teasing. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. Yeah, it was a it was a small study. It was it was it was you know it was over two hundred patients. Uh, it was um, you know it, it was there was no there was no uh, real sham injection. Uh, you know, and it was technically blinded because the patients were undergoing fiducial placement. Um, it was a single blind study, so the patients didn't necessarily know if they were you know if they were receiving space OAR or not. Sure. Um, you know, they, so essentially they were undergoing fiducial placement regardless. And um, in the process of undergoing fiducial placement, they were randomly assigned in a two-to-one fashion to either receive the space OAR device placement or to not receive it. And what's fiducial placement? So fiducial placement is, is essentially a, a marker that goes into the prostate that's done before external beam radiation therapy usually to help localize the prostate so that you can kind of see where the prostate is and you use it to align and, and target the prostate in a in a more accurate way. Do you always do it? No, I mean, so, I mean, so fiducial placement is pretty common. Um, you know, it's it's not it's certainly not uh, uniformly and, and universally done, but it it is common and it's helpful, uh, particularly with certain types of onboard imaging for prostate radiotherapy. It is helpful to to align and guide the position mm-hmm. of the uh, you know of the the target for radi- for radiation delivery. So that's actually that's actually pretty common. I see, and, but but not universal. You can do it. No, it's yeah. universal. No, it's it's certainly not universal. Um, depending on the image guidance that you use, uh, the the I think the sort of universality of fiducial placement is certainly not, um, you know, it's not 100%. Uh, but it's definitely a common thing that is done in radiation oncology uh, clinical practice. Do you like to use it? You know, I, I personally don't use it. There's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, institutionally here, we um, we really haven't done a lot of fiducial placement for a couple of reasons. Number one is uh, we feel that the the image guidance that we use for prostate treatments, specifically, uh, we use CT on rails, which is a very, very, um, you know, really clear, high resolution image to guide to guide radiotherapy for prostate treatment. We haven't felt it, it to be necessary with that imaging. Uh, more recently, we've been using real time MR guidance, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a totally different topic. But uh, in that setting as well, we don't we don't necessarily feel that fiducial placement is quite helpful. So for those reasons, uh, we have not routinely used it. And what is a fiducial? It's a piece of metal, a little tiny yeah. bit of metal. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, a, it's like a radio opaque uh, metallic object. Okay. Okay. So what you're saying is they're randomized fiducial placement in uh, that's one two to one and two out of every. Three Three people are randomized to the space OAR plus the fiducial placement. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And um, the study, and tell us about the study. What was it designed to look for, and what did they find? Yeah. So yeah, patients were uh, were randomized to um, uh, 
to either undergo the uh, you know the the space OER placement or not, as we mentioned. And then the primary endpoints were really uh, uh, efficacy. So dosimetrically, did it improve the dose of radiation delivered to the prostate gland? Um, and then there was also a primary safety endpoint that was comparing um, that was comparing grade one or greater rectal or procedural adverse events. And these are things that we kind of outline. Uh, we outline in the uh, in the in the commentary. I see. Uh, let's just talk about that radiation dose. Um, isn't it the case? And correct me if I'm wrong, but um, having having seen a little bit of it um, with like head and neck cancer, I mean, you're all very very cognizant and thoughtful about where you get radiation dose and where you don't get radiation dose. That's part of the craft, the art of being a radiation oncologist. You want to hit it where you want to hit it, and you don't want to spare you know normal organs. Um, at the same time, it must be acknowledged that the way the patient feels and the side effects the patient have is not always one-to-one -one perfectly linked to the radiation dose. I mean, there could be some people you think you did an exquisite job and they just have horrible side effects. And there could be people you think you're kind of getting sloppy with it. Not to use that word, but you know, you're, not, you're a little bit more permissive. Um, and then they actually skate off just fine. Is that fair to say that it's not a, it's not a perfect science, a lock and key science? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that certain dosimetric endpoints have been shown pretty conclusively to be associated with worse toxicity. So that that's really um, has been shown. But but when it comes to, for example, um, you know, quality of life endpoints as well as radiation toxicity, um, we we are just beginning to understand what the implications uh, of various doses are for a specific patient. So for example, you can have two patients with relatively identical radiation doses to the same organ, you know, the rectum in this case, or the bladder or other local regional organs. And those two patients can have very different toxicity profiles from, from nearly identical doses. Mm -hmm. That probably has to do with underlying biological differences in the ability to tolerate radiation dose mm -hmm. Or um, you know differences in medical comorbidities that contribute to to worse to worse side effects from radiation. So there certainly uh, is a correlation with higher doses of radiation to the rectum or to any normal organ and worse toxicity. That's that's pretty robustly shown. Yeah. Um, but but the the sort of uniform increase in toxicity and, and the absolute increase in toxicity associated with higher radiation dose to a given organ uh, is not, you know, it's, it's not always conclusive and that some patients tolerate slightly higher radiation doses just fine and other patients don't. And that's really the fine line that we walk as radiation oncologists is we want to give uh, plenty of dose to the tumor that such that we control their cancer, uh, but we want to minimize side effects as, as much as possible uh, and, and as much as reasonably achievable by reducing doses of radiation to local normal structures. And that's that's the whole art and science of radiation oncology. It's fascinating. I mean, I guess um, I hear what you're saying. And I mean, I guess... Um... I don't doubt that there's a positive slope between like radiation delivered to off tar to off targets like rectum and toxicity. I guess I'm curious, like, what does the slope of that line look like, and 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 what's the 95% confidence interval, like how, and what's the R squared of this distribution, um, and and then the space OAR maybe help me on this part. It, the space OAR will lower the dose to the rectum, but like, how many gray are we talking? Like, what is the normal dose you're going to get without it, and what is the dose you're going to get with it? You know, what what are the numbers we're talking about in terms of gray? Yeah, so it really depends on on which dosimetric metric you're examining. Okay, um, in this study, it 
it pretty universally lowered the rectal doses of anywhere from 50 to 80 gray. So, and that's, I think that's important in the sense that space OER um, for the patients that were included in this randomized trial um, certainly appears, it, it certainly lowers the dose of radiation going to the rectum above, say, 50 gray. And, and those, those were statistically significant in, in terms of how much lower the radiation dose was. How much radiation um, is going to the prostate just by comparison? So on, on this particular trial, they treated the prostate to a pretty standard, I believe it was 79.2 gray, which is, which is a pretty typical dose of radiation that's delivered, that's delivered to the prostate. That was, um, we, we don't really routinely use that dose a ton now because there's been multiple mm -hmm. trials since then that have looked at different dosing strategies, particularly shorter dosing strategies. Um, you know, giving, uh, giving hypofractionated or shorter courses of radiation therapy. But in this, at the time the study was designed, it was a pretty standard radiation dose. So just, just under 80 gray in terms so of total. So 50 gray less to the rectum, that seems like a lot. No. So, so we're looking at the, the, the volume of rectum or the percentage of rectum receiving above 50 gray. So in this oh, case, the primary, I see what you're saying. Okay. In okay. this case, the primary efficacy endpoint was the volume of rectum that was getting 70 gray or higher. So they were looking to, to show an improvement in the amount of rectum that was getting 70 gray. And the reason for that is because that metric has really been, has really been validated and examined extensively to be associated with, with radiation induced toxicity. I see. Uh, that, I see. That was, that was where they were for efficacy. I see. Uh, I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of interesting considerations there when you think about, you know, a phase three trial, for example, you know, is a phase, should a phase three trial, is that, is that the best endpoint for a phase three trial? Um, you know, I think that's perhaps a very, a very uh, reasonable point of discussion. Because you could just look uh, at rectal toxicity directly, which is the thing you're trying to avert, right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that, that's so, so uh, I think that's a good point is could you, sh should a phase three trial have a sort of a dosimetric endpoint or should it have more of a, you know, a clinical efficacy endpoint? Those are important nuances of, of trial design and consideration. But, you know, nevertheless, that was that was the design of the trial. Mm -hmm. And I, I think the primary purpose of the commentary isn't necessarily um, yeah, beat them up so much on this. Yeah, right. yeah, it's not necessarily to, to, you know, critique or, or, uh, or pull apart the original trial that was done. I mean, it's good a trial was done because there's lots of technologies that are introduced in radiation oncology that don't have, you know, they don't have randomized trials supporting right, them. Right. You can look across multiple modalities within radiation oncology and find examples of that. So, so the, the purpose of this is really not to criticize or, or, or pull apart the, the initial design of the trial. The purpose is instead to uh, try and call attention to what I would describe as the, the, the routine and the relatively rapid increase in the use of space OAR across lots and lots of different uh, prostate cancer populations. And that's really what we were trying to draw attention to, as well as draw attention to the potential for toxicities associated with the use of space OAR. That's, that's really, I think, largely what we were trying to achieve. Not, yeah. not criticize anything, but just, just call attention and awareness to this issue. Yes. 
and I'm going to come to that. But I guess not. You got me so curious. So, yeah. okay. So I guess there, there, the radio, the dosimetry endpoint you're saying is like the volume of rectum that gets exposed to more than 50 gray, say, or 70 gray. 70, and, yeah. Yeah, 70 gray. Is- okay. And that's not good. I mean, I would prefer zero rectum to be exposed to that right. level of radiation. That's Absolutely. my, that's my goal in life. Um, however, I guess I'm curious, like, um, so are, are, are they reporting like this volume of rectum as like, how do you, how do you report volume of rectum? Is it like a percent of total rectum so like less than two percent rectum or is yeah. it like uh the millimeters cubed of rectal tissue that's exposed okay we, okay we typically do it as a i we usually report it in both fashions so we'll report the percentage of rectum that's receiving above a particular dose 70 gray or 50 gray gotcha for a particular plan uh, that's obviously influenced by how the rectum is drawn and the shape of the rectum. So if it's very distended or very narrow or it's very long, the percentage differs. So for that reason, we will frequently report the the CCs, uh, the volume okay. of the rectum receiving above a certain dose. In this case, um, you know, 70 gray was was the primary focus okay. and, and quite reasonably because it's, it's most robustly associated with toxicity. Okay. So those are things that are reported um, pretty routinely for plan evaluation. Okay. Now, there was one thing that I noted and that we put in the commentary, which was the primary clinical safety endpoint was technically they failed to meet that in the study. So what was the primary clinical safety endpoint and, and, and what happened there? Yeah. So, so the, the primary clinical safety endpoint as described in the, in the study, um, and we sort of go over this in detail, but it was essentially the, the rate of grade one or greater rectal or procedural adverse events within the first six months. I see. Right. And I think that's I a think nice clinical is, endpoint. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. 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 I mean, this, this is essentially, um, you know, you, you could look at this in one of two ways. Uh, and they kind of go over this in the original in the original manuscript publication. Um, one way of looking at it is that, is that placement of the space OAR device uh, did not appear to increase in- increase rectal toxicity. So it wasn't like when they they were doing the uh, the actual procedure, they had a bunch of, of rectal adverse events that took place, or um, you know, or, or other issues that took place with regard to the placement. So that's one way of looking at it. There weren't, there were not a lot of procedural adverse events in this study, which is great. I mean, it, and we and we directly say this in the commentary. We say that, you know, based on the study, the procedure appears to be really, really safe. There does not appear to be a lot of safety concerns, and that certainly appears to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, their original kind of hypothesis that they outlined was that they were expecting perhaps a, a higher rate of of grade one. Uh, or greater rectal procedural adverse events in the control arm. So they they also, just for the sake of consideration, they also did not see a reduction in, in the rate of rectal uh, grade one uh, adverse events, which, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it's something that we bring up. I don't think it's a, it's not, it's pr- again, probably not the main thing to focus on. I think there are, there are more important um, potential implications in the, uh, uh, in the blinding of the study and the absence of uh, provider blinding, that sort of thing, that mm-hmm. that are worth discussing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that was something that there was there was no difference in those events between the two arms, I between either the spacer arm or the control groups. Now, they they do bring up an important point: the control group was was really high quality radiotherapy. These were centrally reviewed plans. These were really expert radiation oncologists. So they may have had lower toxicity rates um, in that control cohort, which I think is a reasonable comment um and, and and that's something that certainly is worth considering okay. but, it, but it is an important point about the study before we come to the mod which is what i want to talk about um 
Any last thoughts on, and you, you alluded to this. So what, what does the potential role blinding could have played? Um, and how do you see uh, that? So, yeah. so that I think is something that we probably don't discuss enough in, in radiation oncology trials, you know, particularly trials that have a quality of life endpoint mm-hmm. or a physician reported toxicity endpoint. Okay. And the reason for this is because the, the, in many cases, the individuals that are managing the patients are not blinded per se to the device placement. So they see the device, they know the patient has the device. And I think we, we as oncologists are, are, this is obviously well known. We're at risk for managing patients differently. If we know they have a, a, a particular procedure, you know, a medication, a non placebo intervention performed, we, we definitely are at risk at managing them differently. We may perceive that they, uh, you know, they either have less or greater toxicity based on our own sort of biases that that something may reduce toxicity Mm. so you know the most important thing that can be done with regard to trial design is is robust blinding you know and and that is a that is a known effect the 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 uh the absence of blinding is is definitely a concern and providers who are not blinded are at risk of managing patients differently and and how that subsequently impacts um, you know, how that impacts other quality of life metrics and other factors within the study, I, I think, is, is again, a point of discussion. And the purpose of this is not to, to pull apart the study or really, you know, aggressively critique it in any way. I, you know, I, I don't want to be overly negative or, or critical in any, in any regard. But these are just important academic points to discuss mm-hmm. when you look at the results of a randomized trial. They're, they're very reasonable and important points to discuss. Mm-hmm. And how would uh, one, I mean, just hypothetically, if one wanted to blind it more than it has been, would one like have one radiation oncologist devises the treatment plan and executes that and a different radiation oncologist follows that patient? Yeah, um, but even then, if that patient, the second radiation oncologist, if they get a scan at any point, might they be able to tell from the CT scan that the yeah. rectum looks a little further apart than I w- thought it to be, even though it's reabsorbing by the day? Yeah. So so there's a couple of ways this it could have been blinded. Um, you know, number one, they could have blinded subsequent managing providers, yes, right? Okay. So, so you could blind subsequent managing providers to the placement of the device or not. Um, you know, the other the other important factor is that there there it, it may have been helpful to do some sort of methodology to assess for the reliability of of patient blinding. You know, mm-hmm. because there there are methods to assess for. Um, you know, the, the reliability of, of blinding of subjects. Yes. Yes. And, and the reason I say that is because, uh, when the patients are treated, um, there's a risk that they, they could find out if they have device placed. Right. Like, like you, but like, it, it feels like my prostate is further away from my yeah, rectum. Yeah. Or exactly. that kind of like a heaviness in the, in the perineum. Yeah. Feeling, right. Or, you know, the, the, uh, the therapists treating the patient may know and could give some sort of indication because they see the device placed, um, there, there could be some indication provided at some point during the treatment. So again, this is not the, the goal is not to aggressively criticize it, but these are in the spirit of academic discussion, the spirit of data consideration and interpretation. These are points that I think are valuable to bring up and invaluable to consider when we look at the primary endpoints of the study and when we consider whether this should be routinely applied. And when you look at the rate of utilization, these are things that I, I think are, are very appropriate to discuss in sort of an academic setting. Sure. And um, 
you haven't read some of the stuff that I've done on sham control, but we were very, inter- I'm very interested in this topic. I mean, we did something where, um, I don't know about in this procedure, is the patient under general anesthetic? No, they're, they're they have some, con- it's con- they are, yeah, most of the time they're on, un- they're under anesthetic. Okay. Yeah. So full general anesthesia. Not, not, not uniformly full general anesthesia. There's usually either like a local anesthesia yeah, nerve block or something. Yeah. Yeah. Like a nerve block or a local, a local anesthetic. I, I, you know, I, I don't want to, there's obviously a large heterogeneity of practices. So there are probably practices in which the patient's under more of a, you know, a conscious sedation or a, a, a complete anesthetic. Um, so there's a whole variety of practices, but it can be done with a patient awake, but is my understanding. Again, I don't do the procedure, but sure. is my understanding it can be done with the patient awake and uh, a local anesthetic. I see. Yeah. Uh, the reason I ask, of course, is... Um, you know, as one assesses if the patient um, is aware of their assignment, um, you really want to separate like the potential benefit the intervention could be giving. Because sometimes you become aware of your assignment, you start to actually feel better, right? From your psychological perception that you had the intervention, and we've thought of a lot of ways in like third party reviewing videotape and things like that um, that we've written about in different articles. But I think it's a super, it's an academically, it's a very interesting question. And it's not unique to this product. It's either, um, you know, it goes from stent stable coronary disease to any mechanical intervention that primary purpose is to ameliorate a subjective outcome, you really want to separate the human desire to feel better from the, the, the actual benefit the intervention provides. So Dr. Hall, in this, in this paper that's coming out in the Lancet Oncology, um, you took a look at the MAUD database. Um, can you tell listeners what is this database and what were the sorts of things you found that caught your attention? Sure. So the, the MAUD database is a U.S. Food and Drug Administration database. That's, it's a manufacturer and user facility device experience database. Essentially, it houses medical device reports that are submitted to the FDA by either mandatory reporters, which are manufacturers, importers, uh, and some device user facilities, as well as voluntary reporters, things like uh, healthcare pro- or people like healthcare professionals, patients, and in some cases, consumers. Um, and the MAUD database was something that I was not particularly familiar with prior to uh, participating in this project. But essentially, you can search this database for reports that have been submitted surrounding medical devices. And it was really this, um, this database that was the subject of one of the very few publications that exist currently in the peer-reviewed literature that are describing complications associated with the use of space OER. And this is interesting. It's, of course, a voluntary database. People don't have to report, but they can. Uh, So I think, if anything, that would suggest an underestimate. And what were the sorts of events you found in the database that caught your attention or you thought were particularly noteworthy? Sure. So, um, you know, we we essentially... uh attempted to examine the events that had been previously reported associated with space OAR. And to do that, we searched for the term space OAR, and the, the methods for this are outlined uh, in, the, in the Lancet Oncology Commentary. Um, and essentially, the, the events that really caught our attention were multiple independent descriptions of 
toxicity events, things like colostomy or anaphylactic events or rectal wall placement, pulmonary emboli um, that were associated in some way with the use of space OAR. And it's important to note that there's a couple really uh, critical caveats about the MOD database that the MOD is, is really, really um, upfront about describing. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, and you had mentioned this a little bit, it's really not intended to evaluate, you know, rates of adverse events. I mean, this is mostly voluntary reporting. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's possible that the events are missed. That's definitely something to consider. The, the other thing to consider is that there are limitations with regard to accuracy, verifiability, and scope. So those are things that um, the mod has significant, you know, significant limitations in, in the ability to assess. Um, but what was really striking from the perspective of uh, a radiation oncologist that, that treats a fair number of patients with prostate cancer is that, um, you know, first of all, Many of the events were quite lengthy in description, meaning they were, you know, in some circumstances, paragraphs of uh, described events. Um, second of all, uh, you know, many of them followed a relatively consistent pattern in that in the types of toxicity that were being described. And the global impression from this was that in the spectrum of intermediate risk prostate cancer management, Many of the events that were, were described would be um, considered to be somewhat catastrophic. Mm. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, patients with intermediate risk prostate cancer, for the most part, uh, do very, very well with standard of care therapies uh, without the use of space OER. They have a very low rate of severe toxicity requiring intervention or, or surgery or hospitalization. That's just something that you know, is, is very, very uncommon in this category of prostate cancer patients. So as my colleague and I, um, uh, Dr. Lawton here from the Medical College of Wisconsin, went through and reviewed these events, uh, we, were, we were both quite surprised with the description of the events and in some cases, the severity of the events that were described. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's um, a important to know. I mean, I think you, you've drawn the appropriate caveats. We don't know rates. Um, I saw somebody tweet that this has been used uh, lots and lots of times, and so these rates must be low. I, I, I don't know if that's necessarily the case, because of course, this is voluntary reporting, so even the numerator can be subject to question. Um, but it's important to note that some of the events are causally, they seem hard to pin on anything other than the placement of the space OAR. Uh, they are literally mechanical complications uh, in and around that area, um, and and they are severe, as you note. So I'm wondering if you put it all together, Dr. Hall, um, how do you think about this product? What do you want listeners to take away from this from this paper out now in the Lancet Oncology? Sure. So there's a couple of things that I would like um, general urinary oncologists to take away and listeners to take away. The first is that, um, you know, I, I don't want the impression or the intent of the paper to be perceived as uh, overtly critical, but I do want it to draw attention to the available randomized data. Uh, I have seen uh, a significant amount of practices using space OAR in a relatively uniform fashion, meaning if patients are 
getting prostate radiotherapy, they are also receiving space OER. And I would like the article to draw attention to the original publications and the original inclusion criteria of the trials that evaluated space OER, which were relatively limited to intermediate risk patients. This did not include high risk patients. Um, the other thing that was somewhat important that I'd like people to be paying attention to is at least considering the possibility of a placebo effect or some potential biases associated with the findings that are reported in the studies. That's something that um, the, the co-authors uh, or the authors that report on the, um, the results of the, of the randomized data describe that there are, you know, to quote their own words, a number of possibilities that exist to explain some of the potential associations that have been seen in their data with reductions in, in for example, urinary quality of life, um, despite the fact that uh, there was no change in the radiation dose to structures associated with urinary function with the placement of space OAR. Um, that was a finding from the original randomized data that the patients who had space OAR had a, a better urinary quality of life compared with the control arm, and, and they, they hypothesized why that might exist. But one of the things that is not hypothesized is the possibility of bias uh, amongst either the observers or uh, management biases associated with um, associated with the arms of the study? And I think that's something that at least warrants consideration. Um, you know, the other thing that that we're seeing quite frequently is that space OAR is being used in a variety of dose and fractionation schedules for prostate cancer. Um, for example, it's being used for SBRT-type treatments or proton therapy. Um, and I, again, would, would encourage just a, a little bit of caution and evaluation uh, when it comes to uh, applying this routinely with dose fractionation schedules in which the, um, the robustness of the evaluation of the device may not be quite as significant. So, um, you know, this is just a, a call for reflection and careful, careful consideration on the part of uh, general urinary oncologists uh, that may be associated with the use of the device to consider is this, you know, is it always indicated? Is routinely using a device absolutely necessary? What are the benefits and what are the risks? And I think most importantly, if, if severe toxicities are seen, when the space OAR is placed, we should really try and be vigilant at reporting those toxicities to the MOD database because that's, I think, the only way that we're really going to start grasping some of the uh, potential for severe toxicities that exist with the device. Um, I, I was not very familiar with the MOD database prior to this project, and I, I think drawing attention to the presence of it, which it exists for a very good reason, it's publicly available for, you know, for a very good reason. So I, I think drawing the attention of, of the general urinary oncologists to this database may be quite helpful, and uh, perhaps these types of events can, can get reported. Uh, that's very well said. Um, I'll just give my two cents um, as as someone, you know, you brought me into this and I, I started to like a look and I, I thought it was fascinating. I guess I would say, you know, I, I come at this more from the point of view of somebody who spent a lot of time thinking about medical devices broadly. And I think those of us who do spend time in the regulation of medical devices 
are concerned. We're concerned with the standards in general for the adoption of novel medical devices. We're concerned with the depth to which we assess on on market safety signals. Here you have a very interesting product. I mean, if one were to be perfectly honest, as we're using it day in, day out today in the United States, I'm not sure we know for certain that as we're using it, there's a net clinical benefit. And that happens for a couple of reasons. One, that there's been indication drift, as you describe. It's being combined with, with different types of radiation not initially studied. Two, I think the trial was always, you know, there are always some question marks around whether or not the benefit was consistent on a patient-centered outcome in the setting of appropriate double blindness um, rather than sort of surrogate outcomes, which is radiation dose, um, even if they are good surrogate outcomes. Um, and then the, the, on the other side of the scale, the, the harms. And even one or two of these harms that you describe can can offset the benefit to like a thousand people. I mean, I mean that's one way I, I look at this, which is that you know you're talking about a very expensive device for it to be cost effective at traditional thresholds of cost effectiveness. It's it's got to you know substantively lift quality of life for you know most people who get it. I'm not necessarily sure that that's the case. That it that it's even even uh, based on the available data that it that it would meet such such um, cost effectiveness if if run by impartial groups. Um, but when you start to factor in even a few severe rare adverse events like this, um, the risk benefit I think is is really something that 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 requires further consideration. And I guess you know, like in a perfect world, I'd love to see like a thousand person RCT on this, you know, post market um, with double blinding. Uh, allowing people to be flexible in terms of the radiation schedules and doses they use to kind of mirror that pragmatic real-world landscape. Um, but I think it, it's fascinating. Um, you know, devices like this, uh, it's not going to be the first or the last one. And I think all your points are really well taken that people should make a concerted effort to be familiar with this database, to if they have an event in their practice that they're concerned with, to put it in the database um, and to to think about how we should regulate these products that have potential to benefit our patients, but also um, have like any knife can cut the other way. I'll give you the last word, Dr. Hall. Yeah, I mean, I think overall, um, I do want to I, I do want to commend the the original authors of the randomized data uh, that has emerged around this device for conducting a randomized trial because the reality is in, in radiation oncology specifically there are many things that we do that are not that are not introduced with randomized clinical data and that is a, a challenge that we face within radiation oncology i mean we routinely adopt expe- adopt expensive technologies that have not been subject to randomized clinical trials so I, i'm actually um very, I would say, happy that the, that the device uh, manufacturer and that the, the authors conducted a randomized trial. And I want to congratulate them for that. Um, but I also don't want to lose sight of the original inclusion criteria and the original design of the randomized trial. And I think it, it certainly warrants a, a critical discussion regarding routine and uniform use of the device um, in, in the context of this available data. And I also want to thank you for, you know, having me on and discussing this. It's really valuable to have insight from individuals like yourself that have a pretty um, uh, unbiased viewpoint on the topic that can approach it from a vantage point 
of um, that's perhaps different than those of us that routinely treat prostate cancer and routinely um, deal with some of the, the subtleties in these types of toxicity events. So I, I do think it's really valuable to have your insight on this. Um, and and thanks for uh, thanks for drawing attention to it. Yeah, no, thanks. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to work with you on this very interesting paper. I hope people read it. I suspect it will generate some reaction on Twitter because I've been following yeah. Space OAR and I see people, there are people who are fervent in both camps, you know, people who are fervent Correct. critics yeah. and people who are fervent supporters. And so we try to thread the needle. Um, and, and more than thread the needle, we try to talk about, you know, I think ways in which for the next device, whatever the device may be, you know, we can think about it and 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 build upon the strengths of the current study. So thanks so much, Dr. Hall. Thank you. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.